I'm Rosa and I'm delighted to be in the company of some seriously impressive women this evening in a sort of cross-pod extravaganza. I'm joined by Chris from Proud Lily Whites, Lauren from Gold Diggers and Caroline and Rachel from N17 Women. Welcome guys, it's such a pleasure to have you all with me tonight. How are you all doing? Ask me in an hour, Rosa. <laughs> yeah. I think this is it, yeah. <laughs> Good yeah, to yeah. Start of the Women's World Cup, so I'm enjoying that. So I feel That's like I'm right. ready we're having, for a massive yeah. amount of football. Yeah. Good stuff happy, is happy happening. Happy World Cup Day, everyone. Yes, yeah. exactly. Cheers. Cheers to that. So we're all Spurs fans, but we're all here to talk about something bigger than the club we try to love. Last Friday, um, the ex-Man City player, Benjamin Mendy, was found not guilty of all remaining charges of rape and attempted rape. And this was following a previous not guilty verdict on all other charges. So he's now been cleared of all charges that were made against him. Um, what happened after that is really the impetus for this gathering tonight. So there were several social media posts made by high profile male players, Paul Pogba, Memphis Depay, notable, um, expressing their support of him and their their views that his life had been ruined and his reputation and his career had been damaged and they, they wanted to express their support and asking for, um, I guess, restitution for him in some way. Um, Subsequent to that, uh, further supportive comments were made on these posts, followed by like upon like upon like upon like by other male footballers. And to be honest, it was quite an extraordinary outpouring, really, the likes of which I, I just I, I can't think of. A, I can't think of a sort of similar situation, really. And it was a pretty unsettling experience I would say watching it all unfold on social media as female football fans um so and we had all been kind of talking about this on Twitter where we know each other from and it just felt like there was a lot more to be said so this is what we're doing here really this is about getting together discussing how we felt about that, exploring, trying to get into some of the bigger issues around it um, in football, but also inevitably within wider society because we can't avoid that. Um, but what I'd like to start with, I think, is just our sort of immediate reactions to it because that was what I felt most strongly, I think, was I needed to reach out to you all just to feel some sort of solidarity and to try to express that solidarity to other female football fans who I hope will get the chance to listen to this and understand that that we're with them and we all felt something together. So I'm going to go to you first, Chris, because you um, sort of a day or two later were impelled to write a sort of fierce and angry post about it where you basically said enough is enough the game we love needs to do better. So what were your, I mean, you sort of wrote it all down, but can you kind of give us a flavor of what you were going through in that moment? 
Yeah, because before I sort of go into that, and it's it's pinned to my um, Twitter profile at the moment. The thing that really that I could sort of I felt in my gut, I suppose, is I've you know I've loved football my for as long as I can remember. Um, the time I fell out of love with it first was when I found sort of feminism in my sort of late teens. And over the years, I've managed to sort of reconcile the two because I had to, because I love football. But it, it was it's moments like this that make me realise the world just doesn't work for women. Like no matter what I try to do in all of the other things I do in my life and, and trying to be an activist in football, you know, those those are the moments when you go, yeah, right. You know, no matter what we, we talk about in terms of the strides that women have made, you still have an enormous gender pay gap, which is worse for black and brown women. You've still got, you know, two women a week being murdered by their partners, murdered, right? We don't talk about that. You've still got, you know, just just so many things that are just piled onto each other. And I often talk about how football can be a lightning rod for positive social and cultural transformation. But this instance sort of reminds us that it can also be a lightning rod for all the shit that we encounter every single day. And and so, yeah, so uh, and from a Spurs perspective, I, I think what I didn't realise until a couple of days later was, you know, we all. You know, I've kept the receipts of which Spurs players have been liking those posts. And someone was talking about um, Pierre-Emile Hoybier a couple of days later in something. And like my immediate just response in my body was kind of disdain and a little bit of anger. And I was like, oh, where did that come from? And then I remembered it was obviously from the post. So that's in me now from those players. But and I feel the same way about Raphael van der Vaart. Can't get excited about him sorry um and all those other players whether they've been with us before or after because being a footballer or being a high profile man doesn't absolve you from all of this you know if i think about look, i mean caroline can talk about this better i'm sure if i think about brock turner for example what he did so i'm, I'm sorry this is a obviously a difficult conversation what he did to that woman was abhorrent. And for the judge to come and say that they were worried about his swimming career or whatever his sport he was doing, and that's what matters. And again, that's what matters here is this man's career and that he might be, you know, he might be sullied in the future. And we know perfectly well what the, um, that the criminal justice system doesn't work for women. I'm sure we'll come on to that. So. I won't get into that now because I'll go, I'm sure it'll be a bit of a, a tirade. But yeah, as you can see, it's like, uh, thank you to you for like opening up a space to talk about it because it's hard. It's hard because I, I love football and I love men's football. Like, and I'm not going to apologise for that. I'm also a women's football fan, but I really like, I like men's football. I like going to the games. I like all of that. And it, but, but it's tough. It's tough to reconcile it with all this. Yeah, I think... What I felt, I felt so disrespected. It was like visceral, you know. These men that we we pay to see that man, we give them, we buy their shirts, we talk about them, we all have podcasts where we discuss them, you know, we give them our love. And they and to me, and whether any of this was 
intentional or not I just I felt like they were all saying to us you don't matter you don't matter it's like the likes just kept on coming and it's like they didn't they didn't care that we could see it at all and I remember and you said when we started this conversation Lauren you said it feels like one step forward and a million steps back and it felt just that exhausting didn't it like you can yeah, exist in this sort of lovely bubble and then this snaps you right back. Yeah, no, for sure. I think for me, how I I felt when I saw the, the like, whatever news, breaking news it was that, that came through, I think my first, I was numb because I was like, like, it was just, okay. And then that sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach because I knew what was coming. I knew that that was the, 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 the wave of misogyny and, and sexism was on its way and I think you then think of what do I do with my social media presence do I remove myself so I don't have to read it um but yeah I think with regards to the, the players I was just getting angrier and angrier because we also know that these are very uh, heavily managed footballers in terms of their commercial uh, responsibilities and I was thinking so you guys have bypassed your social media managers to to even you know to, to make comments and to like and 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 co-sign and 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 support this and I just I just felt like once again you're just it's just a constant reminder that there's a the space for for women within football is is really small and it's really exhausting to keep fighting um all of the the barriers and the misogyny and you know these 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 footballers who co-signed um the, the supportive posts they've they're put up on pedestals by, by all of us, um, especially young men. Um, and I just thought you're enabling then people who are not celebrity, it's other fans to just write their ab the abuse that they were writing over and over and over again. And it just became a horrible place to be on Friday night and, and over the weekend, really. I think what Lauren is saying there is really the thing that struck me about this weekend is that it's you know I'm I've actually become used to you know anytime there's a discussion of Mason Greenwood or Mendy or any of the other unfortunately numerous cases you get just masses and masses of you know fans and other people commenting in ways that are highly misogynistic etc but in the past we haven't seen footballers themselves in any large numbers doing this and we're told that footballers you know as privileged young men who are in a demographic where you know this is something they need to know about are being given consent training and we're being told that clubs are educating them and that they are learning and they're learning from the mistakes of previous generations and this just made it absolutely clear that whatever is going on it is absolutely insufficient and there isn't a real sense of seriousness or care around these issues amongst just waves of players. And you, you know, my assumption was that any that weren't, you know, a large number that weren't tweeting would have done, but their social media managers were more assertive or more energetic, or, you know, maybe there was some, because there wasn't a whole lot of other people who were coming out on the other side. It wasn't like there was, you know, yeah, there's been one, there's literally been one footballer um, who said anything at all even vaguely critical of this so it made you feel like you know 
but for some of them it just seemed like this was such this was a moment where they wanted to say something and that need to express themselves was so great to say something that hostile was so great that they were going to bypass all of those constraints and yeah it really is a sad indictment of where we are in terms of men's football in this country and globally because it was people all around the world joining in yeah for me I think it was just really jarring and shocking to kind of see these players showing their true colors you know having this sort of idealized impression that we have of them just being shattered in an instant essentially um and I'm used to feeling kind of alienated from the sport as a female fan but in, I don't think it's ever been this explicitly coming from the players themselves. So that felt like something a bit new, but there is this like relentless friction between just trying to enjoy sport at a pure level, but being constantly reminded of my gender, feeling like I'm being both implicitly and explicitly excluded from fan spaces at times, being reminded that these players that I so admire might not show me the same respect if it came down to it. So it, it's frustrating to feel like as female fans, we're an afterthought to them. Uh, Cause I think the brazenness with which all of these players displayed their support from Mindy showed that women are not considered a valued part of their audience of their fan base. And, you know, I, I think it's just too often women are treated or they're perceived as a rightful conquest for footballers. Like that's, we're like a prize that they get for, for this fame and this talent that they have. And it just makes you feel invisible in your actual role as a fan. Like you don't feel valued as a fan. So there, there's just a lot of feelings that I experienced around this, but also just surprise at who some of these players were like ones that I really would not have expected. Um, and that just goes to show that, <laughs> You know, we can be a little naive as fans and we have this idea of who they are as people and we don't really know them when it comes down to it. But I think another thing with that, though, I think you're right, Caroline, but I also think that some some of it might just be a mindless like, oh, yeah, he was, you know, he was acquitted, like, might not even, re you know, and not realising what that impact. I mean, I've got no idea. Maybe it was it was very active. The The likes were active as opposed to mindless. I don't know, but the, but exactly that to your point of alienation, it's like it doesn't matter because we don't matter because are we really kind of you know despite you know despite the fact that we're all here tonight and we know that there are women football fans up and down the country who have got as much passion and and kind of energy for the game, it's not it's not built for us, never was, and actually if you look in Premier League football grounds, I think it's something like an average of 20% women in football grounds, and but that's an average, and it's a lot lower in some of them. But I think as well, what was so, what was also interesting was, and it's true, we don't, we don't know the reason that, we, we can't look into any of these players' minds, right? Some of them had all sorts of reasons, certain reasons of solidarity, you know, certain just sort of kind of tribal reasons, I guess. Um, they're all, they all live in these 
insane closed worlds, right? They're micromanaged. They don't see reality half the time. And God knows the last time any of them did see reality, right? They all start so young. And if you're that good and you're that successful, you're kind of, you're just, you're put on a pathway when you're so, so, so young that I don't, you know, when do you ever get to have kind of normal interactions with people? So I, so I'm so sort of, I try to understand in that way, but what I think, and some of it may have just been mindless. Some of it felt sort of oddly frenzied. I think that was the kind of scary thing was it just kept on coming. Right. And there wasn't, there didn't seem to be a point. We were kind of pushing back and plenty of people were pushing back, but there was, there was no sort of tipping point that you often see with these things on social media where there's a pushback and suddenly people start issuing apologies or retractions or whatever. And they say, well, I had nothing to do with that. I didn't know. And then, you know, sort of official channels come out with a statement. There was just none of that, right? Nothing. And I think that's that shocked me just as much because that did make me think, you know, and these clubs are probably right to think it and these players are right to think it, it will all blow over. Like, let's be honest, which of our, like among our sort of fellow football fans who are men, who have, who of them are still talking about it really? Like none of them. Yeah, right. I'm just people gonna say have, none of them. Have, yeah, people have yeah. already moved on and it's been less than a week. Less than a week, man. But I think what you were saying about the frenzy is interesting as well, Rosa, because what happens in those situations as well is it gets picked up by other people. And it might be because you're in a le- you're you're in a legal situation with very with rich people that you're also just kind of thinking, oh, is it worth doing anything here? Because we might get a slap, you know, as some kind of, you know, from a from an editorial perspective, let's say, you're kind of like, oh, is it worth it? And then that's how, that's why all this stuff is really systemic. Because at that point you just go, well, there's not that much of a hoo-ha about it. Could we create the hoo-ha? What do we want to, do we want to create a counterpoint? But then if we have a counterpoint and then, you know, someone writes us a legal letter, do we want to go through that? Can we afford it? Whatever. And then, and so it goes. And so it goes. Yep. It's a culture of silence because so far, I think, what have we seen? There's been a statement from Versus and good on Versus. Really good on that. That was a really strong statement. Yeah. Yeah. And one article in The Athletic. I think there were a couple of footballers who unliked the posts, but, you know, they didn't do that loudly. They just unliked them. I love that Thinking you know about that optics. <laughs> well, because people were searching. You, you know, there was these people were putting lists together of who who would like things what. And there were a couple of people who were pointed out, out as having unliked them. I did not do the research myself. Well, and I think that lack of apology from these players was really kind of surprising to me because I was expecting that, even if it was only a sort of reputational damage standpoint. But I think the reason we didn't see any apologies at any grand scale is because they they didn't feel like they were in the wrong for taking the stand. They felt like their stance was received well by a majority of their fan base, perhaps. So once again, it's just an example of, I think, the, the viewpoints and the feelings of male fans being prioritized and ours being overlooked. But also, like, if, say, one person apologized... What are they then in, implying about the other club and teammates who didn't apologize? So once they've liked it, they've got themselves stuck kind of, and they, 
you know it's one thing to have said something different at the start but to apologize for something you said implies that everyone else on your team should also be apologizing and causes friction and you know they're just not going to do it are they unless there's a really strong impetus and that's the problem and let's be honest that's that's half of what football is these days right you just you don't you don't back down you double down you don't apologize it's your team right or wrong it doesn't matter you just end up like fully committing to whatever nonsense is going on there's no room for dialogue I guess at all I mean it's interesting like even like I'm even part of it I think in a way because I was like I just want this to be like a safe Spurs space as well you know I was like you guys are the people I know we talk to each other on social media but I don't you know and I, I don't like Lauren I always think that like how do you do your podcast with gold diggers where you have to talk to fans of other clubs every week I couldn't do it yeah, I, mean, I don't know how you do it <laughs> I think maybe because we're all women it's a lot um there's mm. a there's more empathy there in terms of actually listening um with 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 other opinions but I, I was going back to the um the, the players I was also I'm also conscious that they're all on pre-season together um as well so I'm also th- thinking you know they're having these conversations probably um between each other and I think that plays into the double down you know Oh, I'm not going to lie. I can get, you know, it doesn't take an idiot to work out that they're probably discussing this um, behind the scenes at, at training. And I think, you know, there's <laughs> we speak about solidarity a lot, but I think we do see um, men and, and male footballers band together um, when it when it comes to things like this. And yeah, I, I don't think I was necessarily shocked that I didn't see um, any any apologies, but. Yeah, like, but to be honest, by the time I got to the end of the weekend, I was so exhausted um, by, by the whole reaction. I thought, you know, for, for some of these players, especially um, the Spurs players that I tweet about and, and cheer on, you know, on my TV all the time, I thought, even if you come out and apologise now, it's just because you've, because you've seen that there was a negative, maybe a negative reaction. So, yeah, for me, you know, any apology that comes now is just too little too late. So I think let, let's think about what what it is that we've got a problem with, right? So if you so we're using um, stats from um, rape crisis England and Wales, and uh, in the year ending March twenty twenty two, seven hundred ninety eight thousand women were raped or sexually assaulted, and there's pretty much it's kind of well known that that's obviously only the tip of the iceberg because most rapes and sexual assaults don't go reported and so that's five and five and six women who are raped don't report it right that's enormous and guess what even when you do report it the likelihood of the cps making a charge is tiny i'm sure someone will find some results or some some numbers for that and then the likelihood of, act, of an actual conviction is even smaller so actually a lot of um a lot of the campaigners in ending violence against women and girls, certainly here in, in England, um, in the UK, talk about rape basically being decriminalised in this country. Yeah. Because you nobody, you barely, nobody ever gets gets done for it. And this stuff is really systemic. I kind of, there's a really good thread um, on Twitter by um, David Challen that mm-hmm. I'd recommend our people having yeah. a look at. People don't know who David Challen was, campaigned for his mum to be released from prison because she... Um, she got done for murder and they they reduced it to manslaughter because his father had been 
um, coercive control and domestic violence for like 30 years and one day she just snapped and the kids had seen all of that and stuff. And and in his, this thread, he talks about the legal barriers, the evidentiary hurdles, courtroom biases, secondary trauma and legal backlogs. So, I mean, there's loads of detail in that, which we can go into if you want. But like, think of all of those things, as well as the fact that, you know, misogyny in the police. I mean, you know, you'll have seen... Um, Oh God, her name is just for Baroness Casey. Yeah, the Casey, Casey report, yeah, the Casey report into institutional racism, misogyny, homophobia in the police. You know, they don't take any of this seriously. You know, I read a couple of other things that that you know that there are such low conviction rates in rape and sexual assault. One of the things is nobody wants to work in those departments because they think, well, we're never going to get any convictions, so we're not going to um, further our careers. You know, and then some of the stuff in the Casey report as well, like contamination of evidence because people were putting their lunch in the fridges that the evidence was in. And so therefore kind of cases got ruined because some, some I'm sure some bloke, like put his chilli in the fridge or whatever. So, you know, put add that to legal barriers, evidential hurdles, courtroom biases, secondary trauma, legal backlogs. I mean, it's it's just... It's it's a it's just too much sometimes. It's just too much. Yeah, I think all of that stuff that you're saying, Chris, is is really important. I guess one of the things I just wanted to add to it is how much of rape and sexual assault happens within domestic relationships. And the police at the moment, a quarter of all the calls they get are for domestic abuse. So this is a massive part of what is going through the police system. In their data they show that a third of all rapes are in partner relationships, but it's likely to be way more than that because people in partner relationships are the least likely to report rapes. They're going to talk about it as unwanted sex. They're going to talk about it as all these other things. And so one of the things I think that's really important is to think about that as where a lot of this is happening. And that's really relevant because almost all of the cases that we're talking about with footballers maybe Mendy less so because these are more casual relationships that he's talking about that we're looking at with him but a lot of the other cases we've been talking about you know are about domestic partners or partners at some point or ex-partners and a lot of the things that we're hearing on social media is around the ambiguity that happens around consent in partner relationships and, you know, I want to really just again point out Greenwood because it was happening at the same time and there was all of this stuff about his partner going back to him and having a baby with him. And a lot of the data shows that, again, domestic abuse is likely to increase after the birth of a child just because, you know, coercive control breaks down and you, because somebody is focused on the child rather than your wishes. And so, you know, these are really dangerous positions that we are consigning these women to and seem happy to. So, yeah, and, and just to build on what, what you said, Rachel, I think outside of domestic um, relationships as well, five, this, the Office of National Statistics, five in six women uh, are raped by somebody that they know. So I also think we need to think about um, consent. I think there's a real lack of education on what consent is. Um, and what it means and also that you can give somebody consent and then withdraw it and then that still becomes rape and I think we do have a lack of education about how our criminal justice system works but we also have a, a lack of education within schools um, and you know and teenagers get into adolescent ages young adults on on what 
sexual abuse actually constitutes what consent is. And I think because um, there is a general lack of understanding, that means that when people are reading headlines, people are reading, you know, Twitter threads and all of these type of things, uh, uh, opinions are being formulated on just incorrect information. Yeah, Lauren, I think that's a really good point that there's been a lack of education that leads to some of this. But I also think it's that we need to counter the bad education that some of these young men are receiving from sources on social media like Andrew Tate or in the sports world. You've got Dave Portnoy, the founder of Barstool Sports, who's, you know, a well-known predator. And I feel like a lot of players even like we know that Dyer and Kane have been seen socializing with Portnoy um so a lot of these men they've had perhaps education in school about what consent is but then they're receiving this counter narrative that you know can be more appealing to them um and so they're just rejecting that that prior education out of hand and I I genuinely think with a lot of young men nowadays they don't even acknowledge rape as a concept anymore, let alone as a prosecutable crime, which is a terrifying thing to think about, honestly. And I guess it's just worth saying as well that those people, you know, this lack of education, this lack of understanding, it's not just amongst footballers, but it's part of why those rape cases don't end up with, you know, people being found guilty because the police, the, you know, sometimes even the prosecutors, definitely all many of the members of the jury will share some of those conceptions about what counts and what doesn't really count as rape and they may be told that legally they're wrong but that doesn't mean they're going to instantly change their understanding while they're sitting in a courtroom or while they're writing about it or while they're you know interviewing a you know interviewing a um somebody who has been raped or suffered sexual assault so yeah well and a lot of them are uh, perpetrators themselves right you know if we're talking about what a perpetrator is and I, I think you know I, I mean I think we're all right and I think that's what's complicated about it right there the education is bad there are counter narratives there's you know there are perpetrators everywhere um you know for me I listen I'm like I, I haven't been in school in a long time I don't sleep with men haven't for a long time um and i just think as well though but you aren't like as a like a human don't you understand like what consent is when you're being intimate with somebody seems really basic to me but i, I feel like i'm naive when i when i think that or i say it or whatever I think we are, Chris, to be honest. I think we just, sometimes I think I live in a different world because I honestly, I think, Caroline, you were talking about alienation earlier. I, I do think lots of people, lots of young people are so alienated from each other and from their bodies and what consent is and what intimacy and what pleasure is. I'm sounding like such an old lady right now, but I really, I think that is true, man. I do, I think it seems so chaotic and terrifying out there. I don't know how people really make connections with each other. I just, I don't think they're being kind of helped in any way. I also think there's a complicating factor when it comes to speaking about how footballers exist in this sort of like rape culture that we live in as a society. Um, because I think there's this kind of sense that because they are 
wealthy, powerful, they have all this fame, you know, there's, there's this idea that any woman that they engage in a relationship with is it's like transactional and that they're being used. So I think that what a lot of people are having trouble understanding around a lot of these cases regarding footballers and their, you know, partners, whether they're short-term, long-term is that, you know, there's this natural impulse to want to be around celebrities, but that does not mean that any of these women deserve what has happened to them. And I feel like it all just kind of plays into this idea of good versus bad victims, that it's not a helpful conversation. Yeah, there's never, there's just no such thing as a perfect victim. And if, and if our legal system is looking for that, if we as a society are looking for that, it is not going to ever happen. And it's especially, I think, not going to happen when it's anything to do with sex and relationships and intimacy or lack thereof. Because I think, and I'm so, I'm in a position of sort of really trying to formulate my thoughts on this, really. I mean, I've been trying to do it for years and I don't get very far with it because it's very muddled. But because there is something about rape and sexual assault, I guess, um, because sex is something that we are meant to enjoy and it's meant to be something that that people enjoy together. And then when it kind of goes wrong, there's so, like who is to blame for it? There's There's something so sort of sordid and terrible about it. I feel like we've reached a point as a society where we sort of say, rape and sexual assault is really bad it's terrible it's the worst thing we finally got to a point where everybody agrees it's terrible right but because of that we can't ever admit it ever really happens it's yeah, like Schrodinger's yeah. sexual assault do you know what I mean <laughs> no I like, think no, like, it just doesn't happen it's really bad but it doesn't happen no I think you're so right there and I think also this whole thing about the perfect victim and bad victims you know you can go home with a footballer and you can have sex with him on the first night or you can make out with his friends and then make out with him and you can still then say you don't want to have sex with him again you know you can date a footballer and use his celebrity to increase your social media following and you can take photos of yourself wearing sexy outfits and be on his arm and all of those things and still say you don't want to have sex with him or you don't want to be beaten up by him or you don't want to, you know, that you, whatever. And I think that's the problem is that we are, a lot of the people who are involved in these cases are people who are, you know, you might have a moral judgment about some part of their lives or the ways in which they interact with celebrities, but that doesn't mean that those celebrities have the right to have sex with them to have sexual contact with them without their consent and they can withdraw that at any time. And that's where I think we are a lot of the time. Yeah, and I think for me, this is where I see it's, I think when we talk about uh, football and we talk about sport, I think this is where it becomes really apparent that that football and, and sport is just a part of wider society. Because for me, as long as I can remember when it comes to rape and sexual assault and how these things are portrayed in the media in general society, it's always, oh, she shouldn't have been wearing that. She shouldn't have been walking, you know, home alone at, at that moment in time. We always have this natural 
what is a good victim, what is a bad victim, and then the narrative and, and that allows people to formulate um, their their opinions and it's an easy cop out um, for, for but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what, what someone is wearing. It doesn't matter what their purpose is in somebody's life. If somebody withdraws their consent, doesn't, it doesn't matter what, you know, what they have been doing. That's, that's where the line is. And if you cross that line, um, that, you know, unfortunately, I was going to say that that's where people should be punished, but we know that's not the case. Um, and I think, you know, we, we, I think sport is a, is a vehicle for good, but also I think, uh, issues that we see in society, I think, are really exacerbated uh, within sport, just in a slightly different context. Yeah, absolutely spot on there, Lauren. And and I think you know we do have the one thing I will say though is that you've got. I don't know if anyone knows the organisation Level Up. They do some really good campaigning, and they've actually. Um, done a lot of work with the media about how to report on rape and sexual assault cases so actually you will see that the majority of the media talk about stuff in a different way now than they would have done a number of years ago so and, and that's only a small thing but at least there's some movement because there's so many you know there's so many of us sort of working on that but I think again we're back to some of the things we were talking about earlier which is there are five we're counting correctly five yeah five women here having this conversation we're not the ones that have to change and who's going to listen to this is this going to be something that we that, lo that other women will listen to and go god yeah they're right but other people that really need to listen to this going to listen to this because it's 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 men that have to understand this and have to think about changing and there's another reason why football why it was so kind of devastating for me, all of this is because, you know, we said it earlier, they're role models to young men. Lauren, you said this earlier, didn't you? They're role models to young men. And actually, if they say something here, that's how you make that. That's how you turn stuff. And thinking about, you know, football stadia, people watching football is where large groups of men congregate. That's how we should be talking, who we should be talking to in those contexts, in those groups of lads. You know, I dread to think what football WhatsApp groups of groups of lads look uh, sound like. I absolutely dread to think of it. And, you know, Wayne Cousins, that guy that murdered Sarah Everard, serving police officer, was in loads of WhatsApp groups with his colleagues, police officers. We've already talked about the police police in this. Um, and he was nicknamed, ha-ha, it was a bit of a joke and a nudge as the rapist. Don't know if he'd done anything by then. But that was just the joke. Now, if that's kind of an acceptable joke to make about some geezer in your WhatsApp group, you know, like, and, and nobody else is challenging it and no one's challenging those tropes, well, that silence or lack of challenge is is kind of inherent compliance. You're all right. But I, um, but do you know what, Chris, that is so interesting, actually, because we almost have fallen into the into a similar trap where we're talking about victims we're talking about survivors right and we, we're doing that because we want to reach out to other women and we want to show them our support and our solidarity and we want to feel like we are all connected but actually and we're talking about there's no such thing as the perfect victim but it's just like who are the perpetrators right and we don't that Wayne Cousins example is so spot on in a way because it's like oh, you can joke about somebody being a rapist because rape and sexual assault is just this nebulous thing that happens. Nobody does it. 
men you know if we talk about how many women are sexually assaulted who's doing that that means many men will know other men they we know they know men who do these things but they don't want to think about it they don't want to know about it it doesn't happen not my friend and I think this is where football is such a kind of it's like a, it is a microcosm of wider society because it is that these are my guys my boys they don't do it no none of my my teammates don't behave like that it doesn't and, happen you know this I feel like the conversation that's happening right now amongst the footballers is one where suddenly Mindy who you know obviously we cannot make a statement about his his guilt because we don't know that is the truth um even though we know that he's not been definitively proven innocent either but the the stance that these footballers are taking is that really he's the hero in this scenario um and and the narrative becomes about false accusations when in reality we know the statistics we know how rare false accusations actually are and yet that is getting an outsized amount of attention in this conversation so i think it, it's upsetting that this sort of default position of a lot of men has become well women are liars you need to be on the guard against these false accusations and it, it's it's just misogynistic at the end of the day and it's not based in reality um and i think the sooner men can come to that realization and you know understand that they're living in this sort of rape culture that that's when they can actually take on some responsibility to change that culture and i think you're right chris that we, we can shout into the void as much as we want as women it's like it's cathartic for us to have these conversations and i think it's important but at the end of the day we need men to be having these conversations too and committing to actually having a productive dialogue not shying away from these hard questions when it actually matters because too often you hear you know oh there are no easy answers well try like please try to find some hard solutions any answers we'll take any, any. Answers. just give it yes. a go <laughs> we need you to try i think is really the message that i would give out today i just wanted to also follow up with one thing which i think is really important what you're saying about who are the perpetrators and one of the things that was really noticeable in memphis to pace um instagram post and tweet about mandy is he described he says i didn't see any evil in the man as if somehow like perpetrators have horns or they go around like you know snarling or lasciviously like talking about everything they're going to do to unwilling victims it's and I think and obviously that's an exaggeration but there is this sense in which we don't think that the people we know and like are going to be perpetrators and of course over and again we find out that these nice boys whether they are footballers or colleagues or family members or neighbors are those perpetrators and it's having to shift our understanding of that is really important and men doing that as well because I think to Rosa's point of like our boys aren't like that our friends aren't like that it's like like what you've probably done it yourself or tread of or trod that line on a number of occasions even if you think your friends aren't like that you might have yourself because of you know Caroline said it a million a number of times we live in a rape culture we don't even understand we don't understand where the lines are yeah, and I think um, I, I shared it earlier in, in our chat, my old uni lecturers 
and uh, have written a, an art an, an academic article about um, misogynistic misogynism and and sexism within football. But um, the literature review is actually really good, and I think they they touch upon self categorization theory and this um, dichotomy between us and them. And I think because football is inherently tribal in its nature, you really see it. And I think we do see men stick together and say, oh yeah, no, <laughs> you know, he's mates with me, he's got my values, so we wouldn't do that. Um, and I think we then see that marginalization of women, that's the outcome, because it's a case of, oh, okay, as men, we're gonna stand together um, you know, <laughs> even to, to say something stupid, like oh, I didn't see any evil in his eyes, if, you know, he's the, the devil when you're walking past. Um, and I think we've got this, and I, and I think we see it as well with the reaction, depending what what team an accused player may be playing for and, and, and the reaction. And I think we have this tribal nature, which we just don't separate. And we make excuses if players, for example, play for high profile teams because they're needed for their team. Um, therefore, um, we're going to judge them differently. And, and I think um, it's really sad because we all love football, but I can't ever you know, imagine myself loving football to the point where I'm just going to put my morals to the side because I want someone to win me a Premier League. Um, well, especially as Spurs fans, if we, if we wait, we'll put our morals to the side for a very long time. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, we, we do live in that, that, that we excuse people just, just, just for the for the nature and and yeah it's just another thing which I just find really infuriating more so than anything and I think it's it is it's just because it's so it's hard isn't it because we do love this sport so much like Rachel and Caroline I remember when I was listening to I think your round up your sort of wrap up pod for the WSL season and I think it was your co-pod at Abby who actually gave this like glowing tribute to Bethany England who obviously we've all been loving so much this season and and just her kind of journey and the way she kind you know she left Chelsea and she committed to Tottenham and she was rewarded with um, a place in the World Cup squad if she ever plays it gets any minutes oh my god we don't know um but the way I remember Abby talking about this is why we love athletes right we love them man. like what they do what they're capable of the commitment they show the drive the passion the energy we love it and I don't ever want to be in a position where I feel embarrassed or ashamed of that right but here we are and I don't know how to make those connections anymore you know I don't know how to I don't know how to cherish these people these men I guess because it's easy it is much easier with the women's team because just you just don't get this this level of stuff obviously but you know, these guys are at the top of their game and we do get to witness something really beautiful with them, you know, even with Spurs where it's so chaotic a lot of the time. Um, and I don't want to have to, like, feel, yeah, feel bad about that. But they make it really, really hard, man. And I think... I just can't... I just... I don't know the the disconnect. I, I just keep coming back to it, like the disconnect. And I don't ever want to live in a world where there's no forgiveness for any of this stuff. You know, it's not whether or not it's it's my place to forgive people for the things they do. I think as a society, we'll we'll have to find a way forward because we can't go on like this, right? Where it's just we say this is the worst crime, and then because of that, it just never happens because we don't ever want anyone we love 
or even admire to be guilty of it. Like we have to have conversations about punishment, but also rehabilitation, right? So, but we have to accept that it, but first of all, we have to accept that it happens and we have to accept that the people that we love and admire do it. I'm re I feel like I'm really rambling because this is so muddled in my mind, you know, but I well, don't know where we move on I, from here. Yeah. Can I just interject to say that I think that the, the football clubs that we support, they could do a better job of handling some of these issues from the start. So just for an example, with, with Tottenham, last summer, we signed Eve Basuma. And at the time when he was signed, he was still, you know, considered a person of interest in a sexual assault case. And so even though I know that realistically, because he was cleared, I should be able to support him wholeheartedly. But I think because of the way the club handled it, that's made it difficult for me to ever fully like get on board with him as one of our players. So I think just for the club to, to know that they need to be cognizant that this is something that has to be handled with more sensitivity and because they put fans in an awkward position too often. Um, and I, I can only imagine how it feels to be a fan of a certain team that we can't name for legal reasons that has a player who is, you know, his bail just keeps getting extended and he keeps playing for them. And I don't know how fans of that team can, can handle supporting them under that circumstance. I, just to go back to what, I mean, I, I'm with you there, um, Caroline, but go back to what you were saying there, Rosa. I think the thing is, is that if you are not of the default group that football is for, right. Which is, straight white cis men really from a fan perspective then you just get thrown scraps and you just try and like scrabbling around for it all the time it's like I've got so much love for Eric Dyer I can't even begin to tell you and that's mostly because you know like does not like things like likes his garden loves his brothers you know went on a tour of the houses of parliament once you know and they're really simple things like they're just so normal but you know, but because we get thrown those scraps and you're just like, oh, OK, like, so there's someone there. like, And it's a slightly, it's a very different example. But again, it's, you know, like in terms of throwing scraps, it's like Jordan Henderson has been a, like, a great ally to the LGBTQ plus community, you know, scored an England goal with rainbow laces on, po like posts about stuff, like off his own bat by all accounts and all the rest of it. Um, But then it's just happy to go, go off to Saudi Arabia because it's going to get a big paycheck doesn't matter that people are being murdered, whether it's LGBTQ plus people or journalists. Do you know what I mean? Um, allegedly. I think if I say allegedly, we'll be all right, right? Um, you know, and so, and and that's the thing. It's like, we are, we're marginalised. This game isn't really for us. And back to Caroline's point about alienation and all of the things that, that Lauren's been saying, you know? And so, and, and so, and so it goes. And so it goes. So, you know, it was interesting when you were saying that about loving the athletes and stuff, because I was thinking... How much have I loved them as an ad, you know, like the athletes? I like the 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 thing, all of it together. Um, but then I think there is always someone that I love, and it's mostly because they're like just being a bit more of a human. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I'll always pick on 
just sort of there's there's just you know aside from the sort of Harry Kane's of this world who I do you know think have yeah Harry Kane's probably given me more joy than anybody except for my children (laughs) in my life um yeah you just kind of you do sort of latch on to certain players don't you and you just think oh that person seems nice and you know I felt so uh, honestly you guys know how much love I've had for Davinson Sanchez I felt so personally like devastated and betrayed to see that he liked that and I think I have to I, I would imagine he's liking it for certain for sort of different reasons and I don't know if we want to get into that at all because um Rachel that was something that you raised in our group about and I, and I kind of and I want to get into sort of questions of sort of male solidarity but I think it's also important because I I think especially coming off the back of um Vinicius's post of support and I think that was very much he obviously felt connected to Mendy and felt that their situations were very similar. Vinicius has obviously been the victim of absolutely horrendous racism in Spain. And it do- I'm sure it does feel to him like there are people who are trying to destroy him and destroy his career because of who he is as a black man. And I think that is obviously present. And I think there's a certain level of I think I think the football world, I think men in football are pretty paranoid as it is because of their closed world. And then I think there are also very good reasons for some of them to be paranoid. You know, it's not paranoia if people really are out to get you. So I think there was a whole that's the whole aspect that I don't think we can really ignore either when we're having this conversation. And especially if we want to find ways to build bridges. I mean, build bridges, that sounds so cheesy, but move forward. I guess. Yeah, I think I I raised it because it's something that I've seen a lot in the defence, not just of Mendy, but of Greenwood, of um, the footballer that Caroline mentioned that we're not allowed to name, um, where people have, you know, especially just, you know, people on social media have been highlighting that, you know, it's black men who are being described and discussed and, that some of the discussion focuses on them as these sort of over-sexualized um, animalistic stereotypes, which we historically use to oppress, you know, people in the UK and elsewhere, because, you know, it's an international response. And that it's this idea that they are, that you know, that people are, specific groups of people are being torn down. And we can acknowledge that these people may have perpetrated sexual abuse and also acknowledge that they may be also more likely to be um, framed in particular racialized ways that they might be, that the kind of abuse that they get from some groups may be different than when nice white people like Ryan Giggs get, you know, a day in court or gets prosecuted. And, you know, and even beyond football, that there are a lot of very elite white men who are able to perpetrate sexual abuse in privileged settings, subject to much less media scrutiny, because that's where they dominate. And so, you know, football is a much more racially diverse space than most parts of society. And... So if we only concentrate on rape and football, we are going to disproportionately focus on men of colour. 
how many MPs, just quickly, sorry, Lauren, but how many MPs currently are um, on sexual assault charges, still have jobs, haven't had the whip removed, etc. Like loads of them. Sorry, Lauren. No, 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 it's fine. I think, you know, I said earlier, the, the way I see my world as a black woman is through a racial lens. Um, and you don't have to ask me twice um, to speak about the barriers that are in place for people of colour. But what I don't like to see um, from within the black communities is excusing actions um, and blindly supporting people just because they are black. Because um, for survivors of sexual abuse, um, whatever uh, ethnicity or gender, actually, if we're if we're talking, you know, there are also uh, men men who are survivors of sexual abuse. It doesn't um, matter the the identity the identity of your perpetrator. So what we what we cannot do is leverage, and this is why I, I felt like with Vinicius's post, we cannot leverage um, the support that you received. Um, for anti-racism, which I wholeheartedly agree with, and use that as a justification as as to why we should blindly uh, all support, for example, Mendy, because at the, everyone's always going to have different opinions on the outcome of the case, um, and I don't think that we can that can use um, racism as a this is why we have to defend somebody. And don't get me wrong the way that the media and we, we all know the way that the media framed things um we do see that narrative and there are racial strong racial undertones sometimes overt racism within the media it is there um but we can't use that as an excuse um uh and 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 use it as a weapon to to, to gain extra solidarity for something that's got nothing to do well at, for that particular topic isn't to do with race do you think he was, because I think this is such an interesting part of the conversation, do you, because our responses were different, because do you think he was leveraging it? Or do you think it was a sort of, I mean, obviously, actually, it can be both, right? Do you think he felt like a genuine sort of, this is, you know, this is, this is my brother, we are going through the same thing, like that was a genuine feeling? I I would say it probably is a genuine feeling. I think mm. he's he's forming that connection and that solidarity um, with Mendy. And I think probably it, it felt like a very passionate and angry statement yeah. as if he wrote it once and then posted it. That's what, that's how I interpreted the tone. Yeah. Um, so I think he was thinking about, um, um, you know, all of the racism that he has experienced and how angry um, he is and, and, with, and with the lack of action. And I think, again, there are links. Um, but I also don't think, for me, you know, I wouldn't be on this podcast if, if um, and and doing this episode if I didn't feel so strongly about uh, about what the outcome and and the waves of misogyny. I don't think it's I don't think it was right for Vinicius to to use his um, platform, which would become a vehicle for for more misogyny and and racism for women, because that's that's the outcome. Nobody asked him to write the statement. He didn't have to write the statement. Um, that that wasn't going to to do anything. Um, you know, the verdict has already been reached. So I I don't see you know for every single person that that wrote a statement or has co-signed this, you've just used your platform as a vehicle to enhance misogyny. It, it for me it wasn't necessary. You, form your opinions, talk in your group chats. You didn't have to to, to provide these this this huge platforms. So yeah, I, I, I was 
um, disappointed in, in Vinicius. And I, you know, I've I've spoken very strongly um, um, in support of him. But yeah, for me, I, I was just it, really angry with him, um, to be honest, yeah. because it's a case of we you can't. Yeah, it's just you've got to do you just got to do better because he also needs to educate himself. Um, and you know, like we've talked about education a lot. Footballers they need to educate and, and understand um, that the sensitivity of what they they're posting, especially when they have social media managers. And you can yeah. be the sort of sorry, Caroline. You can be you can be a champion of social justice in one aspect, right, and have very serious limitations in others. You know, we we all have our own weaknesses, and we all have things that we need to address, right? But I think it's misogyny runs so deep doesn't it and I think that's what this has revealed that men can find ways of of showing solidarity to each other across so many levels when it comes to women it's just nothing silence or worse than silence I guess sorry Caroline you go no I was just gonna say I feel like you know we sitting here talking we recognize that there's sort of an intersectionality to all of this like class comes into it you know with the wealth that footballers have that complicates things but and you know we have to talk about it sensitively because we know that there could be a racial aspect to it as well and I think we mentioned many times today that footballers don't always have the same level of education perhaps and they live in this very cloistered environment so perhaps they're just not thinking of it in this way um, but that's where it comes down again to the need for education. Um, I feel like clubs especially have a, a duty of care to be working on these sort of issues because a lot of these players, they're in this club environment from a very young age with academies. And this is sort of supplanting some of their you know, formal education because they're not in traditional schooling. So it's they do have a responsibility to be educating players. Yeah, and if they're living in these very sort of closed off, paranoid little bubbles, who's kind of, who's creating those bubbles for them, you know, who's providing that structure? And I think, yeah, once again, our clubs really, really need to do better. I feel like one of the things that I felt most strongly coming out of this, that I feel quite a lot anyway, is we, I think we all do it and it's something to for us to kind of, just all individually watch out for and as groups as well it's very easy to kind of collapse issues into one right so you know you could see it with the with footballers and they were just like this is all the same this you know and things are th separate things can be bad in different ways right and they don't all have to be the same but it does mean it's a real tricky maze to kind of pick your way through I think and if we yeah we struggle doing it and we really want to do it <laughs> So if you're not necessarily interested, it's going to be even harder, I guess. I guess I was just thinking, going back a bit to what you were saying, Rosa, about what do we what do we expect of the club? What do we expect of others? And I guess to some extent, and, and thinking about that in a context in which we're saying that sexual abuse and sexual assault is so widespread that, you know, we're not going to actually lock everyone up. It just is too many people to look up. So you do have to think about, um, you know, how we live in a society where people learn to change or learn to do things differently and what role the club 
plays in that. And I guess at the moment, because it's very much a legalistic role that the club plays. And so they defend their players and then they get rid of them when they're going to be, you know, bad for marketing or they loan them. So they don't have to make a final decision as in the case of some players. Um, but they don't want to, they don't want to have those players. The last thing they want is a player to admit that they did something bad and talk about it and talk about how to do things differently or to be upfront about it. And I think that's in a way one of the one the sort of one thing we'd like. Like someone like Basuma, I don't even know what the case was. None of us know what it was about. We know that it didn't, you know, he didn't eventually get prosecuted. Um, he was a person of interest. I would love him to be like much more front and center talking about it, talking about what he learned, talking about what he uh, what he underwent. And if he was like that, then I would be so much I would find it so much easier to, you know, come to terms with him playing for Spurs and support him wholeheartedly and want him to score and all those other things. And I think that somehow this very legalistic approach, which I understand why they have it is just stopping the club from doing anything or encouraging players to do anything which would cross the boundaries that we're talking about. And I know, you know, Rosa, you talked about some of the the male Spurs fans in your life feeling reluctant to talk about these issues in public. I I think that's something that really just has to change and and men have to take that risk of having difficult conversations where they can actually make a difference and influence, you know, their fellow male fans. Um, Because I don't, I don't think as female fans, we always have as much clout to influence, say our clubs, um, the premier league, you know, we, we, we need more support from the other side of the gender spectrum. We all have to do unlearning in these contexts as well, right? Like we do it every day because everything that we've grown up in is steeped in patriarchy, white supremacy, um, you know, heteronormativity, all of those things. And you have to unlearn it all the time. And we all have to do it all the time. But if you're the default, you don't feel like you don't have to because actually that's what the default is. And I think that's the thing there is like uh, the greatest analogy I ever heard about this was like a f- there's a fly in a bottle, right? It's happily flying around in this little bottle. Only when it escapes from the bottle does it realise it's been in the bottle the whole time. And so that's what it is. So we're in this patriarchal, white supremacist, heteronormative, whatever. And it's only when you're out of the bottle and you realise it, you're like, oh, shit, look at this outside this bottle. Oh, my God, I've got to do. But it's a constant unlearning. And then you're flying around in a much bigger space than this bottle. And the thing is, is if you're like having a lovely time in the bottle and you're not trapped in the bottle because actually the bottle's your domain, then so those are the things. Um, but I think what's interesting, and I, I've never kind of I haven't made this connect, I'm just I haven't made this connection before. So bear with me. I'm not gonna end this thought necessarily. But we talked about Andrew Tate earlier. And I think the interesting thing about Andrew Tate is like, how has he connected so well with teenage boys? what is it that he's tapped into right so we talk about all the things that we've talked about but those kids need feel like they need something in amongst all of this even though they are the default and the world is built for them right so there's something interesting about that as well i'm not sure what the answer is by the way but you know no you're right i i remember my realization 
that Andrew Tate was so popular. I didn't realise because I just thought, oh, whatever, just another one. But actually, you know, he's entrenched within young, young, impressionable um, men's minds. But I, you know, I think we do, we see it in, in wider society and, and, and the media. Now we, we see an, um, an obvious uh, shift to promote diversity, for example, within the workplace and, and whatnot. You, you do get the default now saying, oh, you know, straight white men are going to become marginalised um, if we continue down this path. Um, so I think you're right. <laughs> yeah, whilst you're whilst you're in the bottle, um, and it and I think that the key whilst you're in the bottle and it works for you, and I think some of the advantages that you get whilst you're in the bottle, you're actually just not aware of them, and I think getting people to move outside of their comfort zone, or actually um, the balance shifting more towards 50 50 rather than shifting in your favor a lot of people will do see you know a lot of straight white men see that as a step back they see it as being disadvantaged so actually when you're feeling comfortable and and, and privileged you know what is it what is it going to take and that's why you know a, a different point but that's why i hate when i see the tropes oh it's oh look you know i i'm you know i made this change because i've got a daughter um, or you know, I've made you know, my my mum's my hero, and all of these type of things because it's like, oh, okay, so just because you you know you've got um, a couple of women in your life, or or that that's when you're going to do the change. Actually, what we need to see, and and that does start with the clubs. We need to see um, men want to voluntarily do the work, even if it's hard, even if you don't like. Um, it's getting comfortable with feeling uncomfortable, and in, until um, we see um men start to do that it, it, it's kind of like how, how do we move forward but actually like we said footballers are role models um and and I, I've always liked Eric Dyer as well not um just in terms of his he seems to be quite intelligent so I think you know somebody like him using his platform um to to, to do good to promote change maybe that would see a, a different point of view um, that 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 actually there is a different way of thinking, and and if you do the work, here are the resources. We post about the resources all the time. Um, it's it's easy. You don't have to go and look for them. Here they are. Um, yeah, and maybe we would see some change. Lauren, I think that's the perfect note to end on. Really, Eric Dyer, over to you. I like the sound of it. <laughs> um, guys, this has been amazing. I'm so glad we did this. I'm so grateful to have spent like an hour or so talking to you wonderful women I felt such solidarity with you guys and I hope that whoever listens to this um will feel that coming through as well so thank you so much guys and I guess also come on you spurs can I do a final addendum in this yes. like final second, which is watch this space because there's a bunch of us who are setting up a women's Spurs fans collective where we want to bring women together, make sustainable change like the things we're talking about and represent and amplify women's voices. So coming soon. Solidarity. Sisterhood is powerful. Yes. <laughs>